Well, good morning, City Church. It's good to see you all here today, uh, even in Mass, as we gather together soon and very soon, right? Uh, hopefully the Lord will be gracious to us and uh, we will not see through Mass darkly, but then in one day be able to see face to face, right? So we're looking forward to that day, and so am I. Uh, but today we're gathering together uh, to worship the Lord and to open his word and to continue a series that we began in the book of Mark uh, several weeks back and that we'll continue through Easter. Uh, just before we do that, though, I wanted to say one thing. Uh, I'm really thankful for Dewey giving the announcements this morning. Uh, I appreciate all of you working with us in some of the flexibility that we've had around our revisioning time. I cannot tell you how excited I am about entering into this time. Uh, this is something that I've done before in my previous church. And it's just a wonderful opportunity for us uh, to come together to remember who we are, to remember why we're here, to dream about what the Lord might have for us in our community. Uh, and that's a good thing in general and in all times, but it's especially a good thing uh, right now, right? Because we all need to dream a little bit more about uh, what life might look like after COVID and what uh, the Lord might be calling us to. And so I'm excited about that. And uh, we are going to have, uh, just this past week, we uh, nailed down that we're going to be doing an all-day Saturday event. One of the things that we didn't want to do in, in May is actually extend over onto Sundays because uh, we were told a lot of people have things going on kind of leading up to the end of school. Uh, so we're going to do an all-day Widgie Wagon event. Uh, and my coach, I actually have a coach uh, who is the head of coaching and other things for Redeemer City to City up in New York is actually going to come and help us to kind of compile all the things that we've talked about over the nine weeks. We're going to be going through the revisioning and actually have some focus on um, moving forward together and getting excited about what the Lord is calling us to as a community. So I, I'm really excited about it. I hope you are too. Uh, if you've not signed up yet, please do so. Um, and please think about committing yourself to this process. Uh, we need everybody's voices in this. Uh, we are a community for a purpose. And, and the body of Christ can't function if you don't have all the body parts, right? So we need everybody to participate. So I would encourage you guys to do that. Um, that's enough of that. Uh, we're going to be uh, diving into God's word now and opening up. If you have your Bibles and you want to open up with me to Mark 3, 7 through 45, as we just saw. Uh, this is a passage that covers all kinds of different things, and there's no way that we're going to be able to look at everything in here today, uh, but we're going to be focusing in on what I believe is the uh, kind of the crux of what's going on here and kind of the central theme of the passage, and we've been doing uh, that a lot over the course of the last several weeks. Uh, the first part of the book of Mark, as I've mentioned several times, is asking one big question, and that is, who is Jesus, and why should we care who he is? You know, Shakespeare famously in Romeo and Juliet asked the question, what is in a name? Uh, and we, in many ways, have been unpacking that. What is in this name, Jesus? Why should we care about this name? You know, if we think about it in our culture today, the name of Jesus uh, invokes a, a wide range of thoughts and feelings and emotions in many people's lives. For some, it's nostalgia. For others, it's pain. Uh, for some, it's comfort. For some, it's fear. For some, it's joy. For some, it's anger, belonging, or isolation, love, hatred, disgust, excitement. The reality is that there's an enormous amount of confusion in our culture today about who Jesus is, why we should care about who his name is, and how we should think about these things. And in the midst of all this confusion, the Bible actually makes a radical claim, and that is that it's only in knowing Jesus' true name that we can know our true name. It's only in coming to know his true identity that we can actually know our true identity in this world. Now, I know that's a bold statement. What in the world does that mean? 
What we're going to be doing is actually diving in this morning to try to figure out what exactly that means. And what we've been doing over the course of this time, and what we need to do more, I would argue, in our culture in general, is go back to the sources. We're trying to learn from those who actually spent time with him, who traveled with him, who heard him speak, who saw the things that he did, and actually experienced the promises that were made, and therefore gained the perspective that we need to have as we look at this passage. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. But before we do that, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it teaches us and molds us and shapes us. Um, And Lord, we pray uh, that you would remember your promises to us as we gather together as your people, that you would come, that your spirit would come, that you would open our hearts and our minds, our eyes and our ears, so that we, O Lord, can see and know and understand more fully who we are, what the nature of our world is, who you are, who Jesus is, and why should we care? And that through this, Lord, that you would transform our hearts and minds and mold us into your people. And truly, Lord, transform us by your grace. And we pray all of this in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. All right. Well, just to give you a little bit of a context of where we are in our passage, if you look here, if you have your scriptures, and you look in in verse 7, we're told here by Mark that at this point in Jesus' ministry, that he has been traveling, he's been preaching and teaching, he's been doing miracles. We've been looking at several of the miracles that he's been doing. And as a result of this, he's been making quite a name for himself across the region. Uh, And the news of all of this, of his teaching and preaching and miracles, and and his suspected identity as the Messiah, we've talked about that as we've gone along, this kind of promised figure throughout all the scriptures, uh, the one who is to come to save his people from themselves and from their sin, and hopefully from the Romans is what they think about there. Uh, this has created quite an excitement. And as a result, a great crowd from all over Israel and the surrounding regions have gathered together and started following Jesus around. In fact, Mark tells us here that the crowd that is formed at this point is so big that Jesus had to start preaching from a boat so that he wouldn't be crushed by the crowd. Uh, you know, you have these enormous crowds that form. Uh, you can, you've, you've probably seen these kind of ideas in different uh, news stories about stampedes. Uh, in certain parts of the world, they call them crushes uh, for a reason, because as the people pack together trying to get close, uh, you can actually feel this kind of crushing experience. And Jesus had to remove himself from that and actually go out and get on a boat uh, near the shore and begin to preach there. Uh, so that he would not be crushed by the, uh, the audience that's gathering around him. And this is amazing, not just because of the size of the crowd, but if we take a minute to look even deeper, what we see here is it's amazing because of the makeup of the crowd as well. There's an incredible ethnic diversity in this crowd. There are people we are told here from Judea and Jerusalem, these were Jews. There are people from Tyre and Sidon, these were tr- true Gentiles. There are people from uh, Indumia and Galilee who were these multi-ethnic, multicultural people. These were not people, you need to understand, that typically hung out with each other all that much. These were very different cultures, very different people groups. However, they're all together, all come to hear from this one Jesus. But that's not only it. It's also great geographical diversity seen here. The regions of Tyre and Sidon that we're told about here were actually 100 miles to the north of Jerusalem. Now, think about this for a minute. There were no airplanes, there were no buses or cars that existed at this time. For these people to be here listening to Jesus, they walked, and they walked a long way to get there. This is incredible what's going on here. But not only that, there's great economic and vocational diversity. 
We're told that Peter was a fisherman. Uh, he was a blue-collar guy, worked with his hands. Matthew was a tax collector and a, a Roman collaborator. He actually worked for the Romans to collect taxes. Simon, the zealot, was a revolutionary. He actually worked with the other revolutionaries in the time to actually try to overthrow the Roman Empire. So you have a guy working for the Romans, and then you have a guy who is working to overthrow the Romans all together in one place. And this is just a small glimpse of the incredible diversity of economic and social class that existed here in this audience. It's amazing. And what we need to understand here is that this, we are told as we kind of understand the greater context of this passage, was not just a peaceful time. This was a time of great national, ethnic, and political tension in the region. Yet somehow Jesus' name had cut across all of these natural lines of tension and barrier and division, and it brought this huge, very diverse crowd together in order to hear what he had to say. And so you kind of get a glimpse of the amazing nature of what's going on here, not just in the size of the crowd, but the diversity, the true diversity, the true unity of this crowd that's come together. And in the midst of all this, Mark tells us here in verse 13 that Jesus went up to the top of the mountain and called a small group of his followers together unto himself and appointed 12 of them to be his apostles. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been around Christian circles or in churches uh, at some point, uh, it's easy to read a passage like this and just kind of like keep moving on, not even thinking about it. Uh, of course Jesus appointed 12 apostles, right? Everybody knows that uh, who's been around the church. It just seems like a, a natural thing. We don't think about it all that much. But if you do that, and if we do that this morning, and we don't take the time to really understand what's going on here, we're missing the point of this entire passage. For you see, there are two very important things that are being communicated by Jesus in his actions here that are vital for us to understand this larger question about who he is and what his name represents. And that is, first of all, the importance of naming. It can be difficult in the English to actually have or experience the full weight of what is being communicated in this idea of naming here. But in the Greek, it's very clear that the theme of this whole section is centered around this concept of naming. Verse 14, we are told that Jesus appointed 12 whom he named apostles. But if you look at it in the Greek, it actually says something more profound. It says Jesus created 12 apostles by naming them as apostles. The Greek refers here to the idea of creation, and it actually uh, represents in many different situations the idea of an artist creating a beautiful work of art. He's creating these leaders. He's creating this group. He's creating his apostles in this moment, and he's naming them that as he does. And then he goes on to rename many of the people who were actually in his leadership, these apostles. Simon, we are told, he named Peter, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, he names the sons of thunder. And this is a very common theme that we see throughout the scriptures, if you take the time to read throughout. In the Old Testament, you see Abram, uh, who God renamed as Abraham. And then after this, you see Paul, who God, uh, who originally was named Saul, who Jesus names, renames as Paul. And so there's this kind of theme of kind of renaming that goes. And the question that comes out of this is, why is this important? Why should we care about this renaming and naming business? Well, it's important because as many have recognized throughout human history, the act of naming has incredible power to it. Power that we oftentimes don't think about, but we rarely 
escape from. We rarely live without that force, that power, influencing and guiding and directing our lives on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis. Dr. Lauren Graham is a professor of history and science at MIT and Harvard, uh, has spent years doing extensive research into the importance of this concept of naming and names. And in her paper entitled The Power of Names, she points out how vitally important names have been in almost every culture in human history. And the reason for this, according to Dr. Graham, is because for humans, the act of naming is intrinsically tied to our sense of meaning and our sense of identity, our worth, our value, both corporately and individually. For some cultures, meaning and identity is tied to the idea and rooted in the concept of family. Therefore, the names that they are given and we give our children are actually tied to this kind of like rooted generational thing. Um, You see somebody named uh, Johnson, right? It's the son of John. You see somebody named Davidson. It's the son of David, right? You get these generational things. In the Middle East, uh, the word Ben, you've also heard Ben Laden or Ben this or Ben Aden or something like that. Ben is a word that actually means son, son of Laden, son of Aden. All cultures have concepts like this that kind of go along with them. It's amazing if you begin to look into it. And I looked, the list was way too long to give examples of it, how many cultures have this concept of tying our identity, tying our names to our generational and our family backgrounds. And so we can see that here. For other cultures, she goes on to say, meaning and identity is believed to be rooted in our vocations. And so you get names that come along and that we name our children that have to do with our family vocations. Um, You get uh, idea, you know, names like Smith or Baker or Fisher. These aren't just kind of general names. We, we kind of say them without even thinking about them anymore, but these actually used to be Bakers and Fishers. Um, my name is Richter. My last name is Richter. In German, that means judge. My family used to be judges. And that's why our family is named that way. And it continued on with us. In this, the act of naming has enormous power over one's identity in life, so much so that Dr. Graham says that in a very real sense, whatever or whoever names you actually owns you. It roots you in your history. It roots you in your lineage, lineage and sets the trajectory of your life and vocation and identity going forward. Now, here's the thing. That's true for almost every culture in human history. But when you say something like that in our culture, we immediately kind of get uneasy, don't we? And the reason for that is we don't like the idea of our names being tied to something that's static in this way, that actually sets who we are and defines our identity in this way. Um, We're Westerners, and as good Westerners, we have come to reject the idea of identity being rooted in these kind of static things. Instead, we believe that our identities are fluid, oftentimes. And we have the right to identify our name or name ourselves and determine our own identities through a process of continual self-exploration and re-identification. You see this everywhere we go, right? Who are you? How do you determine who you are? How do you name yourself? How do you create for yourself an identity? Uh, My last name is Richter, but I am not a judge. I am a pastor. So I had the right to kind of pursue these things on my own. Uh, Your name might be John David Hewson, but if you want to reinvent yourself, you may change your name to Bono, right? Uh, And that might be the stage name or the name by which you identify yourself. 
Uh, you can move anytime that you want. You can change jobs anytime that you want. Uh, you can change your family, change your style, change the pronouns by which you describe yourself and your gender. Everything in our culture seems to be fluid in this way, in such a way that we are constantly about the aspect, about the, the process of trying to define who we are and name ourselves so that we can find some kind of deep identity that roots us in these things. And given this reality, you might think that names are no longer important to our culture, but that, as Dr. Graham and many others have pointed out in their studies, is just simply not true. Names are just as important to people in our culture today as they have been in any culture throughout history, even though we kind of look at them in a little bit different light. Just because we don't name our children architect son or musician son uh, or software designer son or something along those lines doesn't mean that our identities are any less important to us and are any less tied to our names that we were given. Nor does it mean that these names have any less power over us as we live our lives. Just think of the billions of dollars that we spend every year on branding, right? Just think of the years that you've spent building your resume making a name for yourself, creating this image of who you are, right? This identity of who you are. Just think of the power of the names like Republican or Democrat, conservative, liberal, northerner, southerner, black, white, masker, anti-masker, baxter, anti-basker, right? These names that we apply to others and to ourselves have enormous power. Or how about things like skinny or fat, smart, dumb, funny, boring, talented, untalented, cool, uncool. These names wield enormous power over our lives and our identities power to unite and to divide, power to wound and to bind, power to save and to destroy, both in our own lives, in our own perception of ourselves, but also in our communities as well, right? And it begs a very important question as we begin to think about this power that exists within naming. Who are you? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Who are you? What is the primary name that you use to identify and to build your identity around? What name do you use that gives you a sense of your ultimate worth and value in this world? Is it your job? Is it your family? Is it your gender or your sexual desires? Is it your political affiliations? What is the thing that most defines you, the name that most defines you in this world? Um, uh, there's a man named Dick Kyes who wrote a book on the idea of identity uh, many, many years ago. And he talks about the idea, if you wanna find out what the thing is, the name is that most defines you, you need to find the thing that you, in your life, that would be most disrupted if it went away. The thing that if it was removed from you, that it would shake you to your very core of your being, that there would be no more you left in it, that there would be no more stability in it. And if you find that thing, and if you really take the time to think about it, you'll find that there's a tiny little string attached to that thing that moves all the way back to your heart and actually drives and guides and molds most of the things that you do in this world. 
And it begs this question, if you were to lose this thing again, who would you be? Where would your identity be? Would there be any stable core to sustain you or your identity in this world? You know, in the, there's a movie that I watched many years ago. It's, it's really a bad movie, um, but it has some good illustrations in it, so there you go. Uh, it's Eat, Pray, Love. Some of you may love it, and I may have just offended all of you by saying that. Uh, but there are a number of different things in this movie that are really fascinating, and it is that Julia Roberts is the main character in this movie, and she enters into this kind of great... Uh, journey of exploration to trying to find out who she is. And she leaves her husband, she travels to Europe, she goes to Italy first, uh, and then travels in different places around the world. And in Italy, she gets this kind of community of friends that she, grow, that she grows to really like and, uh, and be connected to. And at one conversation that they have over dinner, uh, one of her friends uh, says to her and says to the whole group, every place and person has a word. And he asks her, what is your word? And she says, daughter, I'm not very good at being a daughter. Wife, I'm not very good at being a wife. Girlfriend, I'm not so good at that either. And then she says, well, maybe my word is writer. I'm a writer. And one of her friends at the table says to her, that's what you do, not who you are. That's hard to hear in our culture, isn't it? But that's what he says. Maybe you're a woman in search of a word. What you need to understand is that according to the Bible, according to the scriptures, every human being in this world who's ever lived and whoever will live is a person who's in search of a word. We're all desperately seeking for a true name that will give us the stable core identity that we're all desperately longing for in this world. Yet for some reason, no matter how hard we try to find this name and how hard we work to achieve it and to get it, that it never seems to really satisfy. It always seems to be unstable, doesn't it? And as a result, we end up jumping from rock to rock for most of our lives, name to name, identity to identity, desperately seeking but never finding the true name that we long for. And as a result, in the midst of this, seeking, we inevitably end up succumbing oftentimes, more often than not, honestly, to the power of other people naming us instead of ourselves. And in doing so, we discover that the freedom that we thought we had found in making our names and identities for ourselves, and the fluidity that we thought that we could find the freedom in, is actually slavery. Because we actually end up being enslaved to the naming of other people. And it's not, it doesn't bring the unity that we long for, does it? You know, the, one of the great promises of our culture, as we endeavored in this kind of idea of expressive individualism, which says that if you look inside of yourself, you can discover who you are, then you express that out into the world. We believed fundamentally, we built our culture on the idea that if we do that, honestly enough, and work hard enough at that, that it will create world unity and peace, and that everything would be all right. I promise you that that is the narrative of our culture. How's that worked out for us? It hasn't. We are more divided now. We are more separated from one another. We are more angry at one another. We are more broken and lost than we have ever been. 
and we are desperately longing for what it is to find a name that can give us some balance. This is why our culture right now is tearing itself apart. Every time you turn on the news, every time you uh, go out of your door, you see it, you feel it, you experience it. The painful truth is that we all live and die by the names that we are given, and we all harm and heal by the names that we give others. And the question is, where does this leave us? And where it leaves us is this passage this morning, which admittedly, as I've already said, is a profound and bold and blunt and shocking statement. And that is that Jesus says here that there is another way. Instead of naming yourself, we allow Jesus to name us. Because he says, if I name you, you will have an identity that will be able to withstand anything that could come your way. Success and failure, love and betrayal, wealth, poverty, no matter what it might be. And the question is, why is this the case? Well, what we need to understand is that when humans name something, what we're actually doing is we're choosing to name something based on uh, uh, an attempt to describe the nature of that thing, right? or at least what we hope the nature of that thing will be. But as we've already seen, when Jesus names, it's not a description. It's not an act of defining something. It's an act of creation. When he names, he creates. He establishes and he roots. And make no mistake, this is a radical claim, as I've already said. Jesus here is saying that he has the power to not only just describe your identity for you, because that's just wishful thinking. He has the power to actually create one in you out of nothing, ex nihilo, because he is God himself. And the question is, how could this be? Well, through an act of uh, going up on the mountain that we see in this passage and appointing the 12 apostles that is unpacked here for us, Jesus is very intentionally calling our attention to another very important event that's happened in the, in the life of the people of God, in the great story of the people of God. In the book of Exodus, after God saved his people from slavery in Egypt, he led them to Mount Sinai. And there he met with their leaders and met with Moses up on top of the mountain. And he spoke to them and he gave them their, his word and his law. And we are told that he created the nation of Israel, a people unto himself, and named them his special beloved people. And Jesus here in our passage is purposely and very intentionally paralleling this event. You know, Mount Sinai, you had 12 tribes, and this passage is no mistake that you have 12 apostles. In this, Jesus is making another shocking claim, that he is the true and greater Moses the one whom all scripture has been pointing forward to. The things that Moses did in the Old Testament, as wonderful and incredible and powerful as they were, were just a foretaste, pointing forward to a greater Moses who was to come, who would be the one who truly named and truly created a people unto himself, truly saved those people from their slavery, and even greater slavery than the ones that the people of God in the Old Testament experienced in Egypt, a slavery that is rooted in our sin and separation from God. And what we need to understand is the reason we are all so lost and so broken and so divided and so unmoored in this world is not because we haven't worked hard enough 
It's not because uh, we haven't been successful enough. It's not because uh, we aren't born to the right family. It's not because of our looks or our race or our nationality or our economic status or our politics. It's because we have been separated from our creator God, the one who gives us our one true name. And in doing so, we've actually lost our identity in this world. But in Jesus, our creator himself has come into this world and overcome every obstacle, every temptation, every barrier to restore our identity in him. And in doing so, his own family, we are told in this passage, named him to be crazy. The religious leaders named him to be possessed. They actually go and they accuse him of being a servant of Satan himself, of Beelzebub. And which is, which is comical enough that Jesus responds to them by saying, how in the world could Satan cast out Satan? Because what they're accusing him of is that he's going around casting out demons. And they're saying the only way he has the power to do this is if he's Satan himself or he's working for Satan. And that makes no sense. And Jesus points this out. But he goes on to make a greater point that fits into this larger situation. And that is that if a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. We know a little bit about that in our culture today, don't we? We are so divided that we cannot stand. But what we see here is that the people, even though they rejected him, and in doing so, they mocked him and ridiculed him. And then they killed him in an attempt to wipe his name from the face of the earth, we're told. But in his death, something truly amazing happened. By substituting himself for us, he died the death that you and I deserve to die. For rejecting our creator, and then he himself paid the penalty for our sins. And in this, his name was blotted out so that our name might be written in the book of life, we're told. In this, he was... He has created a new identity for us, beloved, redeemed, forgiven. He has given us a new family, adopted us into his, called us children of God and heirs of the great kingdom of God. He has created in us a new nation, a new people, a new humanity in him, which he calls his church, his people. And this is from every tribe and every people and every nation, no matter how far away they come. You want to know how we can have unity in this world? We can't do it in and of ourselves. Only Jesus can. And he has created in us a new name that will sustain us through anything that we might face in this world because in his name, in the name that has been given to you through him, has been given to you by your creator, the one who actually created you and knit you together in your mother's womb, and then who laid down his life so that you might be renamed by his redeeming love. Isaiah 43 says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. How can you have a new identity, a new name in Jesus Christ? Philippians 2 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You know, next week, um, we're going to enter into a time of revisioning, time of thinking about who we are and why we're here. And through that, we're going to talk a lot about, you know, names and why we are who we are. We are the people of God who's been redeemed out of the nature of this world. And that's not going to be an easy process because we all live in a world that in every moment of every day, we are being told what our identity is and how we can have hope, how we can have a name for ourselves in this world. We are being discipled constantly by outside forces in this world. And as we sit down to rethink these things, the only hope that we have in this world is that we remember the gospel. We remember the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came, that the king has come, that our creator has lived and died and been raised again for our salvation. And that through that, that we have been renamed in him. That we, a people from different places and different cultures and different aspects, how can we uh, possibly live together as one? It's because of what he has done for us. How can we possibly impact a neighborhood that is so diverse and so different and so broken? We have no hope if we try to do that ourselves. If we try to name that kind of unity in and of our own strength, we will fail every time. But by the power of the gospel, we have great hope that that, exactly th that thing exactly can happen. And in the midst of our world, we are being called in a very powerful way by the Redeemer who actually named us again to be united with one another for this very purpose. I'm so excited about this opportunity for us to lean into this. I'm excited not only because the Lord is at work in really beautiful and amazing ways in our neighborhood, but because I believe that we're at the crux of a generational kind of shift in our culture. And because of that, we have a wonderful opportunity to clarify who we are, to clarify why we're here, to communicate to a culture that's desperately longing for some kind of stability and unity and hope in this world. You know, it's easy to get afraid, isn't it, in the midst of everything that's going on. But in the midst of these kind of disruptions throughout history is when revival usually breaks out. And I want to ask you to help pray with me that the Lord would do something really special, not only in unifying us together, reminding us who we are, but he would bring revival to our neighborhood, that he would awaken us to our need, awaken our neighbors to their need, that we would be a bright and shining light of his truth and unity in the midst of this neighborhood, not because of who we are, but because of who he is and what he has done for us. Will you pray with me for that? Let's start by praying now. Most Heavenly Father, Lord, we read these passages, we dive in, we unpack uh, these great truths, and it is too much for us. We see the good news of your coming, but we feel overwhelmed by the brokenness of our world, our disunity, our anger, the cynicism and disgust that we have for one another. 
Oh, Holy Spirit, we know that only you can bring the unity we long for. Only you can give us the name that we desperately need to have hope in this world. And we pray that you would be at work powerfully in our midst. We can't orchestrate, we can't uh, create a program to do this. Only you can do it, O oh Lord. And so we cry out to you as your people that you, O oh Lord, would do it. We know that you can, so that we ask that you would. In Jesus' most holy name, amen.